Good afternoon, everyone. This is Greg Lois. Thanks for joining today. And we are going to be looking at some uh, initial discovery and pleadings in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. So, good afternoon. Today is February 5th, 2024. Thanks for joining. And our topic today is pleadings and initial discovery in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. So, thanks for joining. Uh, thanks for uh, Bring your questions. This is completely and totally live, so please feel free to ask me any questions. And really, I'm really comfortable talking about really any topic in New Jersey workers' compensation. But if you have any questions about the discovery process, motion practice, and pleadings, that's really our goal for today. So, in your handout materials today, you should have a copy uh, from uh, my handy dandy uh, guidebook that I write. So, uh, if you do or do not know. I write um, with a co-author, uh, Rick Rubenstein, the LexisNexis Practice Guide for New Jersey Workers' Compensation. And this guide is intended for lawyers and judges practicing law. And the idea here is to give a balanced view of workers' compensation practice, comprehensive, soup to nuts, everything covered in our annual guidebooks. And we've been doing this now uh, for nearly 10 years, actually nine years, we've been um, producing this book. And I like uh, the format of the book because it is um, it's kind of split in half. Uh, Rick wrote a lot of the chapters that are from a petitioner's point of view, like how to do a petitioner's intake, conflict checking, ethics for petitioners, that type of thing. And I write the defense uh, side of the book, so um, how to do things from a respondent's point of view. And again, this book has become uh, sort of the Bible, the best practices of how to handle and present a New Jersey workers' compensation case. I've been doing New Jersey workers' compensation law for more than two decades, and I really love contributing to this book. So today's um, presentation is going to really uh, cover what's in chapter four of this uh, practice guide. And I did include a copy of that in today's handout. So in the handout for today's proceedings, you should have a copy of that. And as you look through that practice guide uh, or that handout, you'll see there's a tremendous number of things uh, that uh, are really intended to be um, forms, okay? Uh, so those forms are, are not, we're not gonna go through the forms today, but we are gonna go through the most important parts of the uh, chapter which is a little bit about like where, where, what, where this comes from, why this is useful, and then a lot of conversation about discoveries and subpoena and what we're doing to prepare a case and present it to a judge of compensation. Remember in the New Jersey workers' compensation system, every case, uh, any re resolution needs to be approved by the judge of compensation. Uh, so the rules of court and the discovery procedures and disclosure devices are incredibly important because they can either uh, be utilized by you as a tool to make sure you get into the record exactly what you need to present your best case, uh, or they could be used against you because your adversary can utilize these tools and disclosure methods as a way of limiting what you're going to bring into the case. And so you really need to be thoughtful about this when you are defending and presenting these cases. So today what we're going to talk about is um, where we're getting the information that we're going to be doing uh, or utilizing to form the basis of our defense, which discovery device should we be using, how we tactically use discovery, uh, and then 
our, our position, which is always we want to start with the end in sight. Uh, really from the time of intake, I want to be thinking about what am I going to need to produce or obtain in order to present my best case at trial. Uh, our belief, of course, is if you prepare every case like it's going to trial, you'll probably almost never have to go to trial and you will get better outcomes uh, because the other side will know that you're prepared. All right, now before I go any further, I'm just going to let everyone know um, this is completely and totally live, so please feel free to type in questions to me. Uh, I love getting questions and it really does make this uh, more fun. So the first thing we're going to talk about is a little bit about pleadings and initial discovery. And the uh, chief pleadings that we're going to file, sorry about that, whoops. The chief pleading that we're going to file is going to be an answer to a claim petition, okay? In our answering statement to the claim petition, and by the way, everything is now filed electronically in this jurisdiction, uh, we are going to be expected to assert all of our defenses that we're going to raise in a case. In this jurisdiction, a defense that is not raised is deemed waived. So our position is that when we are filing our responsive pleading to the petitioner's claim petition, we are going to include every possible pertinent defense for which I could make an offer of proof and I could show in court. It's very important for us to raise every defense we can for two reasons. One, it preserves that defense, and B, it puts the other side on notice of what we intend on arguing. So there is some fundamental fairness that we are trying to accomplish here and letting the other side know what we're doing. Unfortunately, I often get from opposing counsel claim petitions that are hopelessly vague. I get claim petitions that say, uh, where it says, what was the injury? Uh, back. Where did it happen? At work. I mean, really vague statements and subjective, make it really hard for us to narrow down what the claimant is alleging. Now, in this jurisdiction, there are court rules that say if you are being presented with a vague or evasive pleading, you can demand that the other side uh, clarify their pleading. And we will do that by way of our answer. In our answering statement, if the claimant's allegations are too vague, they're too subjective, they're too loosey-goosey, I can't figure out what they're actually alleging, what body parts or what the actual injuries are, I can, in my, by way of my answer, state opposing counsel's pleading is vague and evasive. Court should direct them to reissue it. And that's an important thing to preserve because as the case progresses, and my claimant's allegations are changing and the petitioner is now alleging all sorts of different things. We say, Judge, that's not in the original claim petition. What are we doing here? I'm going to keep pointing out to that. The other thing we do in our initial pleading is we make our requests for discovery. Okay. Um, now, we're going to put those discoveries in our uh, pleading, but then we also have to separately serve them as well. Now, authority for discovery methods uh, comes from the rules, not the statute. And the rules that govern discovery are found in the regulations, um, 12 colon 235-1.1 at SEC, all of those rules. Um, if you're looking for a copy of those rules, then, and you could think of these as the court rules, they're easily downloadable from the New Jersey Division of Workers' Compensation's website. Now, interestingly, the rules are also found on Westlaw. You know, we're a Westlaw, even though I write the book for Lexis, but we're a Westlaw subscriber firm. 
Um, when you go through the rules, you'll see there's almost no commentary to the rules of compensation. And that's simply because uh, there just isn't enough of a body of case law for, this, for there really to be a significant uh, amount of decisions on that. And I look at that two ways. First, the rules are very straightforward. And if you go through uh, the rules, you'll discover, well, they're actually pretty well written. You know, it's a relatively modern regulation. It was written after 1979. So, you know, we're not using weird old, old timey words. But the second thing is, uh, there are such, there's so little case law around New Jersey workers' compensation. Um, very few appellate decisions, very few appeals in this jurisdiction. And for that reason, we just don't have a great body of case law. So you can take the rules at, at almost uh, face value, and, and we certainly do. Uh, when you're determining how you're going to bring your case forward. So, discovery. It says discovery is may be allowed in contested cases, okay? But all discovery has to be concluded within 180 days from the filing of the answer. Now, the judge can extend or reopen discovery, and this has now uh, fallen into uh, favor amongst the judges, where the uh, claimant or applicant's counsel has failed to issue discovery or failed to follow up on discovery demands, uh, we see judges routinely expanding uh, the discovery period, but only really for petitioners. For the respondent, when we have not done our job in obtaining answers to discovery in a timely basis, you really should not expect the judge uh, frequently to expand that. You can, though, make a motion and say, judge, we issued this discovery request and it was not responded to. In general, I think the judges would, would um, be mindful and probably would um, grant you that opportunity. But in circumstances where you just simply fail to issue a discovery demand, and then, again, look at, look at the rule. All discovery shall be concluded within 180 days, and 180 days has elapsed, and you fail to issue that demand, I don't think the judges are likely to extend or reopen discovery just because you failed to do something you should have done. And so for that reason, every time we file our pleadings in, uh, here at LOAS, we are also at the same time issuing all the discovery demands that we can. And there's enumerated discovery um, methods that I'm gonna get into next, but we think it's best practice to do that at the time the pleading is filed. And then it's very important that they get followed up on. In other words, if you issue, for example, a demand for inter interrogatory responses, an opposing counsel does not respond, and then 180 days elapses and you still haven't followed up, I think you're going to have a tough time filing a motion seeking to compel the production of that discovery because you never really moved to enforce your right to that discovery during the enumerated discovery period. So for those reasons, I really want us to be very thoughtful about A, raising every defense in your pleading, and then B, issuing every bit of discovery uh, demand that you can that would support the defenses in your pleadings. Now, sometimes the defense in your pleading is like, I don't even need any discovery in order to show that you're not my employee or this did not happen. That's okay, right? So that's, that's fine too, and we're gonna bring a measure of proportionality to this. Uh, but I do think that following up on discovery demands is very important. It helps you gain leverage in your case. In New Jersey, as an employer, you are not in the driver's seat, right? Once the medical treatment is done, and now the claimant's just making allegations and going to experts, you really want to get and stay in control of that New Jersey case um, by issuing discovery demands and then putting the other side in a deficit, using it as a leverage to push the other side, to force them to respond to you. 
that's one way you can stay in control of your New Jersey workers' compensation case. So there are enumerated discovery methods in the, um, in the rules. And of course, if the adversary does not respond to you within the time allowed by the rules, you may move, quote, on notice for an order dismissing the claim petition for lack, lack of prosecution or suppressing our defenses if we're failing to do it for the other side. Now, the truth is the judges of compensation are going to be very, will rarely uh, suppress uh, or dismiss a claim petition for failure to comply with discovery. More typically, the judge of compensation will execute an order commanding the offending party to comply with their discovery uh, obligations. Uh, that is much more typical. Uh, but because uh, you can ask for discovery in any case or any case where there's a contested issue, and by the way, every case is going to have at least one contested issue, which is the nature and extent of permanent residual disability. It's okay to move for discovery in cases which are otherwise admitted or compensable. In other words, just because you admit or accept a case and say this is a compensable case, it doesn't mean now you are not entitled to discovery. That's not what the rules or the statute says, although some courts will interpret it that way. They'll say, Greg, you filed an answer admitting compensability, then you served interrogatories, you don't need that. You already accepted the case. I'm like, yeah, but judge, there's other issues that I should be given the due process right to look into. And by the way, the statute doesn't foreclose it. So again, use your motion practice as a way to obtain the necessary discovery. Now, common discovery methods in this jurisdiction. Uh, first, the uh, petitioner is required to provide you with medical records of authorized treatment that they have obtained. And you are required to turn it over to them as well. So. Uh, typically, we're going to be getting the medical records in the case provided to us because we're paying for the medical treatment. Uh, in this jurisdiction, you control and direct medical unless you do something silly-hearted and lose control of it, but we'll talk about that in a few months' time. But right now, let's just stay with uh, you are in control of and directing medical. Well, if you're picking the physicians and you're paying the bills, those physicians should be cooperative with you and they should be providing you with the medical, bill, medical records uh, as quickly as possible. And then we have an obligation to turn that over to opposing counsel. But it also works the other way. Uh, I can make a demand of opposing counsel, and I do it in every case, for medical records of any treatment they've received. I want to know what they've received that they, maybe we didn't pay for, or maybe uh, they didn't provide to us. Uh, the second common thing is a demand for answers to interrogatories. And again, this can work either way. Either party can serve interrogatories on each other. Now, interrogatories are allowed as of right in certain types of cases, specifically reopener cases and occupational exposure cases, but there's nothing that keeps you from asking or demanding interrogatories in any case. For example, medical provider cases. There's nothing in the statute that allows for interrogatories or disallows them. Okay, now there is a judicial opinion that says, really, we shouldn't be doing it um, as a matter of course, but by way of motion, we proceed for interrogatories in every medical application case. Like, this is what we do, and you're allowed to do that. Um, some more discovery methods. Subpoenas. Subpoenas are specifically authorized under Section 56 of the Workers' Compensation Act, and it specifically empowers us to issue a subpoena uh, similar to the subpoena that is issued in a civil action. Another thing that we can demand, and I rarely see this being done, but we do this every single 
case, okay? Um, we make a demand for a statement of pre-existing conditions. Now, this is a little used discovery device, but it is included in the rules for this reason. New Jersey still has a second injury fund law. Again, I'll repeat that. New Jersey still has a second injury fund, which means that if the claimant is totally disabled, but disabled as a result of your workplace accident plus some prior pre-existing condition, you can get relief from a special fund that's been set up in this jurisdiction. That's useful, that's great, that helps us reduce exposure. We love the second injury fund, right? I mean, we don't like paying the surcharge to pay it, but we do like the fact that it exists. But the challenge is, how do you know the claimant's pre-existing conditions? Uh, typically, you won't, uh, because that would not be included as part of their workers' compensation claim. So the rules allow you to serve this document, which you can see here, the statement of pre-existing conditions, and you can serve that document on the uh, claimant, and they have to, within the discovery period, respond to it. Now, they only have to respond to it if they are claiming they are totally disabled. Okay, so that doesn't apply to most cases. But I serve it in every case because I have many cases, unfortunately, where the claimant said they were less than totally disabled. Then as the case progressed, they saw more doctors and their uh, attorney sent them to more experts that became totally disabled. All right, now you're claiming you're totally disabled. I want my statement of all your pre-existing medical conditions because that's going to help me get contribution from the second injury fund at the end of the case. So that's something to be mindful of. Um, New, New Jersey does allow depositions where the claimant is infirm. And um, that's really all I'm going to say about that because it's extremely rare. Um, you can also get discovery from the state itself. New Jersey's uh, Department of Labor Division of Workers' Compensation maintains records of every workers' compensation claim filed in the state of New Jersey since, well, since probably the 50s or so. I mean, I've gotten case, I've gotten results back from the 70s and 80s, so probably all the way back then. Um, and so you can go to the state and say, I'm defending a case for John Smith. I would like records relating to every prior workers' compensation claim that John Smith has filed in the state. And the state of New Jersey will directly comply with that and provide it to you. You can also obtain it, those informa that information, through the electronic docketing system, which, all, which also allows for that. Um, but uh, that is sometimes not as complete as going to the state of New Jersey itself. And so our practice here at Lois is to do both. All right, the last common discovery method is anything else you can come up with and ask the judge to approve. So that's all possible. I should mention one more thing is that the statute in New Jersey allows the petitioner's attorney the right to come and inspect the workplace premises where the accident took place. And this is really meant to facilitate civil actions or third-party claims, you know, perhaps in a um, uh, premises liability or a product liability um, aspect. Uh, so those are the moments uh, when they're allowed to do that, but that is also allowed. All right, when you're thinking about your discovery needs, I'm always thinking, is this an admitted versus a denied case? In my denied case, almost everything is gonna be unauthorized, right? Because I didn't pay for that treatment. I'm not um, providing care, so I don't know where they're getting this care. And certainly I don't wanna be surprised at the end of the case, when they come forward with you know a thousand pages of medicals, including surgical reports, so you know be mindful about what kind of case you're defending and what kind of discovery you need. The next thing is HIPAA releases. We issue them in every single case. In fact, if you file a case against one of my clients, we're going to issue HIPAA blank HIPAA releases so that we can obtain any and all 
information about anything that comes up. Um, where are we going to find out um, about priors? Sometimes it's from the state of New Jersey, from that prior record search. Very often it's from a insurance services organizations, Claims Index Bureau or ISO CIB report. Um, the next thing I'm going to serve, again, this is now under federal law, uh, not, not talking about a, a state-specific thing, is a statement of Medicare entitlement. I want to know if the claimant is entitled to Medicare. Now, the current claim petition form, which is built into the electronic docketing system, and so it's primarily what all claimants use uh, in this jurisdiction, requires them to click a box that states whether or not they are Medicare entitled or not. However, I like them to also execute an affidavit to that aspect so I can um, maybe defend myself or defend my client should they commit Medicare fraud uh, by avoiding their secondary payer obligation or ours uh, in the case. So I like them to sign an affidavit saying I am not entitled. Also, it's something that we're always going to check. I mean, we do ask our employers to do matches and let us know who is Social Security entitled and who is not. And the reason for that is so many claimants now have a Part C plan, which is a Medicare Advantage plan, and these petitioners have no idea they're on Medicare. They might not think it is Medicare because they look like private plans in the cards that they're holding. So we like to uh, really try to be, uh, capture that. What's the deadline for this? Again, 180 days. You know, let's be mindful about that. And let's be proactive, right? I don't want things to be precluded. I don't want to lose my opportunity to get expert opinions or to get really competent expert opinions. And so I'm going to be very mindful about making sure that I follow up on discovery. It's a very important part of preparing your case. Um, how do we do requests for production of medicals? Well, we're issuing that every single time at the uh, time of intake. As soon as you file your defensive pleading, you should be demanding copies of medical information, uh, whether it's authorized or unauthorized from opposing counsel, and they have to respond within 30 days. And so do we, right? So when they issue a demand to us for medical records, we have to do it as well. Now, what's the penalty if we fail to respond to the other side's demand for production of medicals? The answer is we'll have to pay for whatever it costs the other side to obtain those medicals on their own. Okay, so that's going to be the only penalty that you have to be concerned about. Now, when I respond to these requests, I like to be proactive about it. I like to proactively provide medicals to my adversary. Think about the position that opposing counsel is in most cases. We are, we are in the driver's seat for medicals, so we're paying for care, we're selecting physicians, we're getting those reports immediately. Opposing counsel is not getting those reports directly. Sometimes they're getting just the notes or the takeaways from their client, but they're not getting the narratives from the doctors. So I want my adversary to know what's going on in the medical aspects of the case, because again, we're pushing them towards maximum medical improvement. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be constantly following up with my client to make sure I have all the information I need, and I'm going to be turning that over proactively to my adversary. Um, we here use our medical treatment tab inside of our computer system to assemble indexes, and then I'm happy to prepare and provide opposing counsel with the same index I'm going to use. The, the reason I do that is because it in, speeds up the time from claimant reaching maximum medical improvement to both parties going and getting their final permanency evaluations. In this jurisdiction, it is very difficult to resolve the case by way of a lump sum dismissal or any other type of resolution 
without both sides obtaining permanency evaluations. Now, they're absolutely unnecessary. Uh, permanency evaluations are not a necessary part of this system. Statute basically uh, barely mentions the use of permanency evaluations, but in practice, permanency evaluations have this almost magical quality in this jurisdiction. Uh, most judges of compensation will not approve a lump sum dismissal of a case unless there is at least one permanency evaluation by, held by somebody saying that there is an issue as to causation uh, or the nature and extent of permanent residual disability. Again, it's nowhere in the statute, but it's a very uh, important practice point to take away that so many of these cases are going to be resistant to resolution until you can get them to that moment of maximum medical improvement and permanency evaluation, both of those things. So again, I'm gonna to wanna to help my adversary. I'm gonna to wanna to give them this information so that they can get their permanency evaluation as quickly as possible. All right, interrogatories are another amazing resource in this jurisdiction. So what is an interrogatory? It's just a demand for an answer to written questions. It's like the same questions you would ask in maybe in a cross-examination, but you just write them out. You send them to opposing counsel and get them to respond to it, okay? Um, now, some cases, you could just get your adversary to provide you with these interrogatory responses, which again, are certified or sworn to. So they're like testimony in your case. Uh, very powerful, can be great for impeachment opportunities, can be great for preparing other defenses. Um, but preparation of them. Some cases, you do not need to go to the court and ask the judge's permission to issue interrogatories on the other side. For example, occupational exposure claims, respiratory, hearing loss claims, those types of injuries, cumulative repetitive use claims, um, claims that allegedly occur over long periods of exposure to an irritant or a noise or a um, repetitive motion. The, no motion is required for us to serve interrogatories in those cases. In death or dependency claims, you're automatically entitled to answers to form interrogatories and in all reopener claims. And this is so important. This is a jurisdiction that so many clients are frustrated about the long tail of these cases. Greg, I settled a workers' comp case. I know it's coming back. They're gonna file another reopener and claim that settlement wasn't right and they deserve more money. I go, yeah, that's how the system is organized, but you gotta be mindful about protecting yourself from reopeners. And then if a reopener is filed, using things like your discovery demands and your interrogatories as a way to control the case. The most important answer in interrogatories in a reopener case is uh, the answer to the question, I believe it's question 13, that says, what interim medical care have you received? What treating physicians have you been caring, been caring with? If the answer is none, I've received no medical care since my prior award, or my last time I went to your IME doctor, which could be three or four years ago, well, you know this is a nuisance value, a lump sum, section 20, $5,000, go away, never come back, uh, reopen, right? That's, that's gonna be your signal. Now, every other case, though, unfortunately, is going to require us to file a motion in order to get interrogatories. So the vast majority of cases, uh, even admitted and compensable cases you can get interrogatories, um, are going to require a motion in order for us to get that discovery. We're typically doing them in medical provider claims. I am filing motions in every one, challenging the medical provider to show that they are entitled to the money that they claim or allege that they are entitled to be compensated 
for the alleged treatment. Uh, we've also utilized what we call specific event interrogatories uh, to get to the bottom of some of these very questionable specific accident claims. All right, what do you do when you get a response to, inv to interrogatories? Well, there's really two things I'm going to do. First, I'm going to make sure that there's no boilerplate evasive answers in them. You know, some of my opposing counsel, look, I've, I got white hair, as you can see, right? I, I've been at this for decades, but some of my opposing counsel have been at it for 30, 40, 50 years, and it looks to me like they've been using the same answers to interrogatories in all of their cases for 50 years. Like they, you know, in an in, in ex occupational exposure case in which they're alleging exposure to irritants caused the respiratory condition, the question will say, what are the specific incident, what is the specific um, um, chemical or fume that caused your condition, their response, any and all chemicals in the facility. I mean, that's as vague and evasive as it gets. It's impossible for me to defend a case when they're using that kind of boilerplate or evasive answer. So that's the first thing I'm going to do. Um, if I, we can't resolve it between the parties, you know, I will typically write them a letter and say, look, I looked at your interrogatory responses. Your answers to interrogatories 7, 11, and 14 were vague impossible for me to determine what your claims are, please, you know, uh, correct that and I'll give you 14 days or I'll give you 30 days. If my adversary doesn't respond, then my next step is to make a motion in court. And I said, Judge, you need to compel them to specifically answer these questions with the amount of specificity that, that you think is the right amount, Judge. And Judge, if they fail to respond and give us responsive answers, Judge, you should dismiss the case. Okay, that's the argument that we make. All right, let's move on to subpoenas because we do have great subpoena power in this jurisdiction. Uh, under Section 60, you are allowed to issue subpoenas, and we do it typically for uh, deuces take of, meaning we're looking for a uh, specific document. Now, when you issue them, you should make it returnable on a list date uh, when that makes sense. Now, what am I talking about here? Every defense counsel in the state of New Jersey, uh, once you have a few hundred cases in the New Jersey workers' compensation system, is assigned a specific day in each of the 15 courthouses with a specific judge. And so I know, for example, every single case that's defended by Lois Law Firm in, for example, the Newark courthouse is with a specific judge and is listed on a specific day in the court. Uh, docketing system on our, our, our cyclical calendar system. All right, so that's very useful for us as defense counsel and for employers because you know, hey, your cases are going to have a regular cadence of proceedings and you're going to have a dedicated moment uh, of time uh, to go before a judge and have whatever pretrial conferences you need or trials uh, or execute pretrial memorandums or do settlements or whatever you need to do. So it's really a great way of organizing the court system and it's interesting that it's organized around carriers and employers, uh, not claimants. Um, but that also means that I can predict with great accuracy every day that any one of motions that I file is going to be returnable in every court, any courthouse. I mean, I know it literally to the date for the next 10 years. So when we're issuing subpoenas, you know, we try to have them be returnable on a court date, okay, court date. Uh, and the reason we do that is just because we are invoking the power of the court. I, the subpoena literally means command, and we're commanding someone to do something in the name of the judge. 
and we like to try to make that returnable on a court date. But unfortunately, sometimes we can't do that, and there could be various reasons why we can't, but you know, one of them is it doesn't make any sense. Like we need, the, we need this information tomorrow or next day, uh, and so we can't wait three weeks to go back to court. Um, now, sometimes judges do not like that, and some judges do not want us signing their signatures, uh, or, and they want to sign the subpoenas themselves, okay? Now, I have the authority to do pro forma signatures. I can issue subpoena in the name of a judge. That's the point of subpoena powers, that we are able to do make a command in, the, in standing in the shoes of the court, right? That's one of my uh, powers as an officer of the court. But some workers' compensation judges do not like this and state that they want to sign every single subpoena, which means review every subpoena before it goes out. Unfortunately, that slows things up. Uh, and, but, and this is very judge by judge uh, as to whether that preference is going to be observed. Now, my opinion is there is no court rule or statutory authority for that preference, and so we do not observe it unless a judge wants us to. Um, the documents or materials we get have to be described, and they need to be specific, narrow, and tailored. We use a very specific template that I think is very narrow and tailored. We have to serve subpoenas by way of personal service, which means they are expensive to serve because we have to actually specifically confront a specific person and get a description. And the last thing is getting a good response to your subpoena. It's really gonna be uh, generally medical records and they are generally going to be relatively responsive. There is the potential to enforce a subpoena uh, and the workers' compensation judge has the same power as a civil judge and can hold someone in contempt for not in, uh, producing documents in response to a subpoena. Unfortunately, there is no such thing as workers' comp jail. So to really hold someone in contempt, we're going to have to go into a superior court and have them ratify and then enforce that subpoena directly. Um, now, sometimes we will have to produce witnesses uh, or attempt to produce witnesses using a subpoena ad testificandum. Please note that when one of our witnesses, one of our witnesses is being produced, I will almost never subpoena my own witnesses. Okay, that's my trial practice. I do not do that. And the reason I do not subpoena my own witnesses, unless they're completely hostile, in which case I probably shouldn't be calling them, um, is because if I do subpoena my own witness and they do not appear, the court's allowed to take an adverse inference on that. The court can say, well, Mr. Lois, uh, that witness was being presented to prove one of your points, and because the witness resisted the subpoena and is not here to testify today, um, I'm gonna hold that against you and hold it against your client. I'm gonna take an inference that they would have testified in a way that would have hurt your case, okay? So that can happen, and that's why you wanna be very thoughtful about our use of subpoena power, We're not willy-nilly just subpoenaing every witness out there. You know, I sometimes have clients who will say to me like, well, you can't find this person, just subpoena them. I'm like, yeah, but there's downsides to that and we need to be mindful and we wanna contain uh, as much of that downside as we possibly can. So just be mindful about that negative inference uh, that's possible. Um, now, adversaries can move to quash our subpoenas. Quash them, they can move to challenge them and say these subpoenas are not valid and they should not be respected because they are A, overbroad, not narrowly tailored, uh, they're impossible. It's impossible to respond to these subpoenas. Or they are seeking um, materials which should be subject to privilege, right? We shouldn't, it's subject to attorney-client privilege. You shouldn't be allowed to subpoena that. Any other reason that they have to uh, challenge the validity of a subpoena, that's fine. They're allowed to do it. And there's a legal process for them to quash a subpoena. 
What I take uh, real account with is when I go to court and I say, judge, I subpoenaed this information. It was important to my case. I got no response. Judge, you should hold an adverse interest against the other party and saying, because they're withholding this information, I'm not getting it. And then my adversary will step forward and say, well, actually that subpoena was overbroad and we should be moved to quash it. And they'll try to do a verbal opposition to a subpoena. That doesn't exist. There's no court rule that allows that. It is legal process. There's an opportunity to object to a legal process, but again, it's by filing a motion in workers' compensation court to quash the subpoena. There's no such thing as oral opposition to a subpoena. So just keep that in mind. Uh, we do want to enforce the power of the court and make sure that we are moving these cases forward. All right, uh, just a quick statement, and I think we did cover this, that the statement of pre-existing conditions, I'm a big fan of it. It's why I wrote so much about it in the book, uh, because I think it's so useful. It is rarely deployed. Um, and our intake procedure here is to always issue a demand for a statement of pre-existing conditions. And this is just so useful in your case. We're later on in the case, and how many, look, if you've done this enough time, you know, cases, uh, workers' comp cases are not like a fine wine that get better as they age, they get worse. And so as that case is going down the road, now they're bringing in new conditions or they're now they're claiming they're totally disabled. Didn't you wish you had protected yourself from that and given yourself all the opportunity you had to defend that? That's what the demand for statement of pre-existing conditions allows you to do. It also gives you this fun thing that uh, you made this demand, it's a lawful demand, adversary doesn't respond to it. And then later in the case, when they're trying to get a point over or they're trying to push the court to preclude some of your defenses uh, or suppress your defenses. You can say, well, judge, whoa, 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 before you do that, judge, I also want to point out that the petitioner never responded to my statement, my demand for pre-existing conditions, right? So this is something you can do that's tactical to set yourself up later in the case. Um, to obtain those records, of course, we are requesting HIPAA releases so that we can go and obtain records relating to all those pre-existing conditions. All right, last little part here is the deposition of infirm testificants. Uh, we already said that if the testificant is gonna be unavailable for trial, we can take their deposition to uh, preserve their testimony for trial. But the truth is that's extremely rare. Uh, I've done this for 23 years, going on 24 years, uh, and only once have I taken a deposition because the claimant was imminently about to pass away. Um, ultimately, that case wasn't even established. So again, this is extremely rare. Uh, this is a jurisdiction that does not like out-of-court depositions or out-of-court testimony at all. Uh, again, there's nothing in the rules that keep the parties from agreeing to do it, um, or it's not that it's disallowed. It just isn't done, practically speaking. It's one of those uh, jurisdictional, unique aspects that it does not like out-of-court depositions or, or any sort of... Um, uh, uh, discovery. All right, last little part here, any other discovery methods to talk about? Well, there's a lot of them, okay? Anything that you can, um, you know, get or obtain, uh, you know, you can ask the judge to do. So, yes, you've already served interrogatories, you've gotten responses, but now you need more information. Well, in this jurisdiction, you can certainly uh, do a motion asking the judge to compel answers to supplemental interrogatories. We do that all the time. 
uh, particularly where the answers um, lead us into a new direction. Um, you can also ask the judge to allow you to depose witnesses. You could say, judge, look, uh, this is a case where we could proceed by way of interrogatories, but that's burdensome and slow. Judge, can you just allow us to take a deposition here? Uh, we'll particularly do this in circumstances where it would really expedite a case. You know, those he said, she said cases where it's really going to come down to witness credibility or like, is does the witness, what are they going to say? What, do we, what are they going to um, testify to? Judge, could you let us do a quick deposition? I mean, that, those are those moments. Now, generally speaking, um, you know, the judge is not going to allow it. A deposition is very rare in this jurisdiction, but you can try. Um, you can always, of course, ask for interrogatories in cases, for example, um, like an admitted accident case where they're otherwise unavailable. Um, and remember, uh, the judge is, does not have any independent authority uh, to demand or create discovery demands on the parties. So uh, sometimes it's useful to ask a judge for intervention, but where a judge comes into your case and says, hey, I want this or that done and I need it done by this date, remember, you can always object or oppose any judicially directed discovery. Now, out-of-court testimony and witnesses by deposition, again, very rare. Out-of-court testimony, out-of-court statements are hearsay, and so they're generally going to be disallowed. But one of the exceptions to that, of course, is where the claimant has testified in other proceedings in other jurisdictions under oath. Um, where those other uh, proceedings are related, even tangentially, to your workers' compensation claim, there's good grounds to argue that it is it is relevant, it is not hearsay, and it should come into your case and be admissible, right? So we're always thinking when we think about um, any type of evidence in any workers' comp case or any other case, is it relevant, and then is it admissible, right? Those are the, the things I want to bring into the case. Um, if it is relevant, right? And so you could think of circumstances where the uh, petitioner has testified in another jurisdiction. A common one would be in a motor vehicle accident testifying uh, in their own, perhaps, uh, municipal court or civil case uh, involving that same accident. Um, what did they say in those other uh, statements under oath? What, what, what were they testifying to? So you can make the argument to bring that into your workers' compensation case. Um, a lot of discovery in this jurisdiction is compelled, and it pre proceed by way of motion to compel the other side to produce specific discovery. We do this sometimes for tactical reasons, and sometimes we do it for strategic reasons. Um, in the medical provider claims, we are filing motions for leave to serve discovery in every case. All right, so that's been a little bit of an overview of New Jersey pleadings and discovery and disclosure tactics. So let me come over here and take a look at questions we have. Um, okay, Miriam asked the question, Greg, have there been cases when petitioner has perm exams and petitioner still has complaints of injury, not met maximum medical improvement differs between providers? Also, what if reports of respondent authorized IMEs are not included in perm evaluations that would be favorable towards petitioners? Okay, so there's two questions in there and I'm gonna unpack them a little bit so I can answer them separately. Um, okay, so the first question is, are there are cases where the petitioner has PERM exams, but they still have complaints of injuries that are that have not met maximum medical improvement. Yeah, so that's a lot of times. Um, claim will go to their, max, their, their permanency evaluator, and they'll say, I still need all this treatment, but their permanency evaluator says, nope, you're at MMI. That happens. 
Uh, it also happens the opposite. Um, they've reached MMI. Uh, our treating provider, again, who we control and direct, because we're selecting those treating providers, have said, congratulations, your journey with us has come to an end. You've reached maximum medical improvement. You're done. And we're like, okay, great. Both sides are going to send the claimant to a permanency evaluation. The claimant goes to their own permanency evaluation, and instead of commenting on permanency, their permanency evaluator um, says, oh, they need more treatment, and it's time for a start over. We got to, or they'll bring in new body parts. So that happens as well. And again, we just have to be prepared to challenge that. I would tell you that in most circumstances where it's a treating physician versus the claimant's one-time independent medical evaluator, the treating physician is generally going to be given much more weight. Unless there's some significant change in the circumstances, the treating physician's um, opinion is always going to be weighted more than a one-time evaluator. All right, the next question I have here is what happens in cases Oh, I'm sorry, you also said, what if reports of respondent-authorized IMEs are not included in permanency evaluations that would be favorable towards petitioner? So I'm not sure what that means. Um, what if reports, so the respondent-authorized medical evaluations are not included in the claimant's permanency evaluations? Well, typically they're not. Uh, so if what you're asking me is how come the petitioner's IMEs don't quote or refer to the defense medical evaluations, it's because in general, we don't turn them over to the petitioner's counsel until after we get a copy of their medical evaluations. In other words, we on purpose, both sides, we're trying to avoid the circumstance where the experts are just commenting on each other's reports. That generally is avoided in this jurisdiction. All right, and then the last one is, uh, last question I have today is, what happens in cases when a subpoena is refused by a provider? Great, so the medical provider ostensibly providing treatment to the petitioner is issued a subpoena and told turn over these records to us, and they don't do it, they fail to do that. Well, we're gonna do two things. The first thing I'm gonna do is say, if I need these medical records, I want them, I'm gonna be saying, judge, compel them. Compel them, judge, issue a judicially ordered subpoena, or let's try to hold them in contempt, right? We could do those things to enforce that. The second thing is sometimes I, I will subpoena a provider, a medical provider, because I'm gonna to have to take their testimony eventually. They're gonna testify in the case. So I will subpoena them and I say, I want copies of all of your medical records. And the reason I'm doing that is I wanna make sure that when I cross-examine that physician on the stand in front of the judge for the first time, that I have all of the medical records that they reviewed, right? I don't wanna be surprised. I don't want them to say, oh, surprise, I have this operative report you've never seen. So I'll subpoena them. Where those doctors refuse or fail to comply with my subpoena requests, I will go before the judge and argue that their opinion should be precluded. I'll say, judge, they're, they're ignoring commands of this court. You should preclude their opinion. You should not let them testify in this case. They're naughty, naughty, bad actor. Don't let them in, okay? So you, know, you could use that both ways, um, which we certainly do, uh, and I certainly do. All right, that brings us to our conclusion. Thank you for asking so many questions. It makes it so much more fun when people ask questions. If you're interested in this topic and want to learn some more, or you're just interested in workers' compensation in general, please check out our email newsletter. Um, we do send it out on a monthly basis. We also produce four podcasts a month here at Lois Law Firm uh, and on various different topics of workers' compensation. And if you're interested in sort of the next level, uh, my partner, Christian, talks primarily about New York workers' compensation on the third Friday of each month. So, Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for the questions. Um, 
Can't wait to see you next month. Have a great month and happy Super Bowl Sunday to everybody next week.